Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend Ann Chavruta, your Dana Osband, our daf of the day, Masachet Rosh Hashanah, daf Dalet, page four. Um, I actually want to begin on the previous daf, because what captures me here is this very, for me, it's a very interesting discussion about Daryavish and Koresh and what happens to them, because there's a whole um, presentation here in the Gemara that says, well, Koresh was good, but then he was corrupt. And was he really good or was he always corrupt? And so this becomes, I think, an interesting, um, there's like this, for me, it's an interesting question of what really happened in the history, in the historical record, which I know your Dana has already explained, you know, it doesn't really line up exactly. I mean, not only exactly, it, it doesn't line up. So then what is really going on? And and who is, and the, when the Gemara says, Koresh and Daryavish and Artach Shasta end up kind of being all the same person, which seems to be very difficult because he starts out being good and then he's called Koresh. And then afterwards he ends up being called by this other long name that we have a difficulty pronouncing in its Persian glory. The question then is, you know, what's really going on? So I want to, I want to just read a little bit of this inside and perhaps we can make some sense of it. Right. So, and, and all of this in the Gemara is really presented in this context of how are they ca- counting his years? Are they counting from Rosh Chodesh Nisan? But the real so the but the meteor discussion here um, is about how good of a person or good of a king is he is was he and Matki Flarev Kahana so Rav Kahana says you know Omi Hachmit did he really become corrupt did Koresh really become corrupt after Ezra and his entourage went up to Eretz Israel Vahaktiv isn't it written and now I'm on Ardaf properly Umachan so all of this, of course, is in Aramaic, but it's from, say, for Ezra, it's from the book of Ezra, where they said that they, what did they need? And it, there's, it goes through a list of the korbanot from rams and lambs and burnt offerings and wheat and salt and wine and oil. Right, and all of this is supposed to be. You might have caught the word Yerushalayim, even if the Aramaic is otherwise tricky. Right, so that this is going to be the offerings in the Beit Hamikdash or in the Beit Hamikdash to be, right? And so then the the issue is like if Koresh sent all of this, these very nice good korbanot, these good offerings, then doesn't that demonstrate that he really is a Yerushalayim, that he's really serious? Amar lo Rabbi Yitzchak. Rabbi, Mutunach. So Yitzchak says to Rav Kahana, we can, we, you can argue against yourself from your own claim because the next verse, meaning also in Sefer Ezra, says, meaning they're offering sacrifices that are supposed to be this reach nichok, this sweet savor to God. And, they, and what's really happening is he ends up praying for the life of the king and his sons, meaning, yes, he's sending offerings, but what he wants is the prayers for his own life and for that of his children. And it's not um, what we would call today l'shem shemayim. It's not just a pure intent to worship to serve God. The Gemara goes on. Oman hachi lav but isn't that a good thing? Meaning, isn't what he's done a good thing? So the Gemara is going back and forth, trying to figure out: well, was he really good, or was he really not good? How far did this appear? Was it just for appearance's sake? And, or was it sincere? We have a claim here, right, that there's a break to that says, 
you know, the person who who offers charity, who gives tzedakah and says, this is, this is so that my children should have good lives. This is so that I will merit um, uh, the afterlife, right? The world to come. The claim is that that person is a tzaddik gamor, a fully righteous person. So if that's the case, then how can you fault Koresh for giving korbanot that are supposed to, you know, also be for the protection of his family? So the Gemara answers, Lo kashim. no, that's not a problem. Because kan bisrael kan bogoyim. This is perhaps a less comfortable statement than people nowadays would like the Gemara to be making, but this is what it says, right? The idea that a, a Jewish person who is who is indeed righteous and is therefore giving tzedakah in you know for his the for the as a prayer, let's say, for the benefit of his family or for himself. Well, we'll say that person is indeed righteous, but for a non-Jew, the claim is. That any that he might, you know, end up being less faithful to his own offering, because what happens if his offer, if the condition that he says, meaning everybody should have long life, whatever, let's say that doesn't happen, is he then going to reject God for not having full, given him the answer that he wanted, you know, in return, in return or exchange for his karbanot? The claim here is, you know, fundamentally the faith of the non-Jew in making such korbanot cannot ever, uh, I'm reading in, but just a tad, cannot ever be on the level of that by the Jews. And so then the Gemara continues, because really they're still trying to figure out, was Koresh, um, did he turn corrupt? And if you want to ask, how do we know that he turned corrupt? Achmitz from the vocabulary, from the word of chometz, vinegar, right? When something goes off, that he went bad. He says, let the... He's saying like that the, the Beit Hamikdash should be built, and then it goes on to the details of what what should be used there. You know, three rows of great stones and new timber, and let all that expense be paid out of Beit Malka, the king's house. So the Gemara wants to know, Why would he pay all that out if it, if it weren't a righteous thing, right? What's what's going on here? Savar, the claim is that he was thinking, if they rebel against me, meaning if the Jews, by establishing their own temple, then see fit to turn against me, Koresh, then because there's going to be timber, wood in the Beit HaMikdash, I'll just burn it down, which is A, not very nice, and certainly a claim that he is rotten, right? That this is not this is not generosity on his part, but conniving a conniving way to elevate himself. Um of course, then the Gemara goes on to say, but Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, did the same thing in the first Beit HaMikdash. So why is this such a problem? Right? So one of the things I think should be coming out of this, all of this back and forth, is this discussion of whether Koresh really went bad is not easily, readily obvious in all of the verses that are presented in such a way as to make him look bad. You can read them that way. Meaning you can read them with that, you know, he's only looking out for himself, you can read it as, well, why else did he put the wood, the wood there and so on? But there's an answer. For every question, there ends up being an answer here. Um, and, you know, so the Gemara goes on even, like, for, for quite a bit longer to try to explain that really he, in, he ended up going bad. He ended up doing wrong. He was corrupt. And 
I have to say that this question of, you know, did it really like what's really happening here becomes particularly interesting if you are able to look at it from the historical record. And I don't think I could do this on my own. But many, many years ago, I had a course with Professor Yeshaya Gafni, who is a historian of the Talmudic era, historian par excellence, meaning his reading of text is just amazing. And he said, and I'm I'm paraphrasing because it's too long ago for me to remember a direct quote, but he explained that the in Bavel at the time of the Gemara, they had leadership that did exactly this, that gave them rights and took them away. And then, you know, offered, you know, again, gave good things, you know, for the Jews who were living in Babylonia at that time, and then Hechmitz, and then, you know, they went off the favor to the Jews. And so then this this position seems to be, you know, Chazal speaking about what they know. And what they know is that any, and I, I'm saying this in, in quotes here, right? Like the idea that any non-Jewish leader who is offering the Jews what they want the, the position seems to be eventually we'll go back on it. You know he's not going to really be good about it. And I think that on the one hand, we could be cynical and saying this is a division between Jews and non-Jews that we don't like anymore. And on the other hand, I think that there's, um, based on what I learned from this professor, I would say that there is um, a historical impulse here to say, we know what non-Jews are like, meaning that that was their position. And so then when they come to address who was Koresh, and they're trying still, I think, Yerdana, to line up the kings with the Persian record, and it doesn't quite work, Tanakh versus the Persian record, then saying this in this way, well, clearly he went bad, makes perfect sense to, to them, even if from, from our perspective, we're reading the Gemara and saying, well, that's a lot of, you know, back and forth. That's a lot of, it's a little bit wishy-washy, it seems to us, but I think that the debate amongst Chazal over how good or how bad must Koresh have been can then be understood to be reflective of their own experience in Babylonia in a way that speaks to their experience. Like they're, they're speaking, I, I don't mean to suggest that they're saying that Koresh was the same as what they experienced, but it's that they, once you have your own, your own understanding, you know, it becomes much more plausible to apply that anywhere you would have such a question. Yes, yeah, so I think it's basically saying that, you know, there's a subtext to this, and it's sort of Hamavin Yavin. It gave them an opportunity to reflect on politically what was happening in their day um, in a way that maybe they explicitly couldn't. And so that's why they care so much to have this discussion here. Um, I'm going to jump down to uh, a brace that appears here that's really going to occupy the next bit of the Gemara. And it's talking about the issue of what we call Baltacher. So what this price is basically telling us is that all of these items that it lists here, which are things that one basically uh, is either vows or is obligated in a different way to bring up to the Beit HaMikdash if uh, three regalim pass, right? So depending on whenever that, um, uh, 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 the word I'm looking for here is, um, you know, the obligation of that item to, to be brought up to the Beit HaMikdash is incurred, right? Once three regalim pass, then you're over on 
Baal Tacher. And the idea of Baal Tacher is, is uh, that you sort of, you, you took too long to fulfill your obligation. So, you know, once you, let's say you make a nedzer, you make a van, you say, I'm going to bring such and such an animal up to the Beit HaMikdash. So, you know, are you allowed to wait five years? Are you allowed to wait 10 years? So the Tanakhama says, no, you have three regalim. So theoretically, if you made this nedzer right before Pesach, then after Sukkot, you would be over, right? You would have violated this principle of Baal Tacher. You only would have had six months. If you made this vow right after Sukkot, um, then you theoretically would basically have a full year because it would be Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. So depending on one type of year, you did type what time of year this you know obligation became incurred. And again, notice all the different things here. So this is vows of monetary payments or valuation, consecration, sin offerings, guilt offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings, charity, uh, you know, tights, firstborn offerings, animal tights, or the or the Korban Pesach, right? And even, uh, you know, the Lekat Chachapeh, the gleanings, the forgotten sheaves, or the produce in the corner. Um, all of these things, you have sort of this three regalim time limit on. Um, uh, Rabbi Shimon Omer, but now the Brits is going to present a bunch of different opinions on this. Rabbi Shimon says, <laughs> So Rabbi Shimon says, no, it needs to be three regalim and three regalim in order. So it only starts basically your clock from whenever Pesach hits for you. So if you made that vow right before Sukkot, that Sukkot doesn't count. The, it starts counting for you once you hit Pesach. Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir basically says, you just have one chag to get it done. So if you take that vow right after Pesach, you actually don't have a very long time till it's Shavuot. Rabbi Eliezer, Omer, Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov Omer, so Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov says, you have two holidays. Rabbi Eliezer ben Rabbi Shimon Omer, Kevan Shavar Elein Chag HaSukot, Ober Elein Bebal Tacher. And Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Shimon says, no, it's just as long as Sukkot passes, then you are over in Baal Tacher. Now, the rest of the daf, which I'm not going to read, basically goes through um, how each of them get to that particular opinion and, you know, how they learn it out. And if there was a particular passage where they learn it from, then the Gemara asked their typical Gemara question was, what do the other people do with it? What do you need it for? Um, and, uh, you know, it's a very interesting discussion. So we're going to spend some time on this stuff and the next stuff, just, you know, about this topic of Val Tacher. So we'll talk about it more tomorrow. Um, the only other thing that's interesting here in this stuff is later on where it says that you should sort of connect the festival of Shavuot, right, um, to Pesach, and that basically... Shavuot, even though it's a one-day holiday, sort of has accounting for a full seven days. Um, so, um, so what that means is, what practically what the Gemara is talking about here, and this is at the end here, uh, right where it says, um, So what it's really a question of is, let's say you forgot to bring your korban chagiga on the first day of a Yom Tov. You forgot to bring that korban, and it's the first day of Pesach. You basically have the rest of Pesach to make it up. And if it's the first day of Sukkot, you have the rest of Sukkot. What if you forgot on Shavuot? Shavuot is only one day. And so here we learn that actually you have seven days. You have the full seven days in order to make it up. So the practical piece of where this actually is involved, and this actually personally happened to me, 
is that when we count things like uh, Shloshim, for example, um, so if you are in a period of Shloshim and Shavuot falls out on that period of time, um, norm, it sort of counts towards seven days of it. It, it takes out a chunk of time of it, um, which is very interesting. Um, so there's this thing about Shavuot sort of counting as a full seven days in some cases, even though in itself, it's a one day holiday. And so you may see that come up in particular halakhic scenarios, but this is the source for it is, is on this particular job in Rosh Hashanah. Wow. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a really important limud, right? I feel like people know this when they deal, plenty of people know it when they have to deal with Avelut, when they deal with the morning, it's Shavuot, it's Shemini Atzeret, that it counts suddenly as seven days. And there's this question of like, why would it be seven days? I feel like now we've got the answer. So right. So I'll, I'll just give you the example of how it happened with me. So you know that if a holiday happens while you're sitting Shiva, it stops Shiva. So when I was sitting Shiva for my father's we got up Arab Shavuot and then Shavuot counted as the first seven days of Shloshim. So from, you know, so the whole period of time of Shiva and Shavuot actually ended up only being about two and a half weeks. It was a little under three weeks altogether because it sort of knocked out a full week there. I think that's really hard. I mean, I think that we appreciate the morning process with all of the time that it takes. On the other hand, it speaks to everything we just said in Masach about about Chag, right? Like that there's a great significance to the role of Chag in the in the rest of the year. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about this discussion. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.